0: Hello, and welcome to Meditations from Middle Earth. My name is Strider, and I'm a Christian worker here in where I call Middle Earth. We love to meditate on God's Word, and He's given us so many unique and rich experiences here in Middle Earth, and I'd like to share those insights with you here on Meditations from Middle Earth. going to continue our discussion and meditation on Matthew chapter 3, working up to verses 11 and 12, as we're talking about John the Baptist uh, and his call for uh, confession and repentance and uh, leading to the baptism of Jesus today. I look forward to meditating on uh, some of these verses. But before we get to that, I wanted to address our spiritual discipline today. The spiritual discipline I want to talk about is the discipline of confession. Confession is an interesting spiritual discipline because in our individualistic society, we consider confession to be quite the private affair. It is when I sin, when I do something wrong, I apologize to God myself. And there's, of course, there's one mediator between God and man, the person Jesus Christ. We know that since Jesus came from God and he went back to God, and therefore we know the person and nature of God himself is seen in the person and nature of Jesus Christ. And so because we know that, uh, we can always pray to him, expect that he's going to hear us, that he understands us, and that he will forgive our sins. He's gone to the cross, and therefore... I know that since he went to the cross, he's not going to then look back on me and my problems and my sins and my terrible decision-making and my selfish actions and all the ways that I have harmed others and harmed myself. He's not going to look at all that and say, you know, I died on the cross, but you could use just a little bit more punishment. And he's just not going to do that. He gave everything on the cross for me and for my sin. And now I know I don't have to carry that. But to what end? And that is that we would then turn in turn, confess our sin, and then become uh, in a closer, better, right relationship with him. Now, in all that I just said, this is something that's not surprising, really, to any of you. People of all traditions and faiths have a concept of confessing. But where we get it wrong so badly, I think, in our Western world, is that we consider all of this to be extremely private. Whereas in traditional, classic disciplines, as they're outlined by uh, uh, spiritual people through the ages the discipline of confession is a corporate discipline it's one that we do with other people and I would say that this is a a really important spiritual concept because as I continue with this premise that I've already given you that my premise is that God is everywhere all the time he has created everything and he sustains everything with his his presence and his very being. And therefore, when I'm talking to someone, I'm in the presence of God. And that someone is in God's presence also. And so that person then can mediate to me um, the thoughts and ideas and compassion of God. And we hear God's voice in other people all the time. Whether they're followers of God or whether they're outlawite scoundrels sometimes we can hear truth we can hear the voice of god in other people and we're like oh that's a message for me and this is extremely important when it comes to the discipline of confession because what we need as sinful human beings who are who are so far away from god where god feels so remote and uh, so out of reach so much of the time and yet when i sit with my brother my sister And I can know that they hear me. And not only do they hear me, but I know that if they hear me, then God surely hears me. And so there's this this idea of presence where they're standing in for the presence of God. Now, I will say uh, on the outset that uh, confession needs to be as widely... Uh, practiced as the sin that was committed. If I have harmed someone, I should confess to that someone. If I've harmed a great many people, I should confess to that great many people. Now maybe I haven't really harmed anyone. I've done um, things that really just stand between me and God. I should definitely uh, submit myself to God and to confess those things to God and to tell him hey, I've sinned, and you're going to say to me, well, wait a minute, God certainly knows that you've sinned. Uh, Why do you have to tell him? And I think that this goes all the way back to uh, the basic nature of our relationship with God and how it got broken in the first place. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, there's the two trees. They're told not to eat of the one or they're going to die. Don't eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil or you're gonna die. Just eat from the tree of life. Eat of all the other trees in the garden, but don't eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So they eat of that tree, and the very first thing that happens is God comes walking in the garden, and he calls out, where are you? And they're hiding from him. And I would put to you that the results of sin, the result of them eating of that tree, is that now they are hiding, and now, This is the heritage we have inherited from them that we are in hiding from God and in hiding from each other. I am always trying to protect my person, my nature. I am trying to keep you from knowing everything about me, and I really want to keep God from knowing everything about me. We know in our minds that it's foolishness, that he, of course, being the creator and sustainer of the universe, he certainly knows all about us. And yet, we always, always, always try to hide. And this is what the discipline of confession is all about. How to stop hiding. We don't absolve ourselves of sins by confessing them. Jesus has already forgiven our sins on the cross. God already loves us. We don't have to make God love us. What we have to do is come out of hiding. We're hiding both physically and metaphorically, and we need to stop it. We need to come out and say, here I am. I'm ready to walk with you in a relationship again. I'm ready to stop running away and hiding in all the various sins that I've been committing, and I'm ready to come out and say, Lord, I just want to be with you again. I want to walk hand in hand with you down the road, That's what I've broken, and that's what I want to repair. And this is in our hands to do, right? God has provided salvation through Jesus Christ. He's the one who's invited us. He's called us to his side. He created us for the purpose of walking with him. And now our job is to simply say yes. And that's what the discipline of confession is. It's the saying yes to God. It's admitting to him Hey, I've been hiding. I've been hiding in this sin. I've been hiding in this darkness. There's been this uh, rebellion against you, and through that rebellion, I have lied. I have hurt others. I have coveted what others have. I have taken from others and given to myself selfishly. I have failed to act in love towards others, and I've hated them, your children, And in in all that, I've been hiding from you. And now I'm ready to come out of hiding and walk with you again. And he, of course, wants this. He invites it. Uh, If you want to confess and you want to come out of hiding and be with him, this is an invitation that he has given you. We didn't come up with this ourselves. We're not capable of saving ourselves. We are not so wise and wonderful as to come up with our own solution, and pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. No, we live by grace, even as we are saved by grace. And it is the grace of God to call us into confession. So we need to take responsibility. And the responsibility is the church's responsibility, not just our responsibility. It's all of God's people. And so we look to God's people to help us. It's a corporate discipline because well, because it's corporate sin. You and I were born into this system of brokenness. Adam and Eve sinned a long time ago. You and I are continuing the bad work that they started. And so it was together that we've all failed, and it is together that we really need to come back to in order to succeed. In order to um, be one with Jesus, even as he's called us into his presence, we need to come together. Uh, Jesus gives us the two great commandments when he's asked, which of these is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answers, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second, which they didn't ask him what the second was, but he told him anyway, the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. We cannot claim to love God and not love God's children. We cannot be claimed to have a relationship with God if we do not have a relationship with his children. And we are all children of God. There's not another God that those children are that God's children, and I'm with this God over here. No, there's only one God, and we're all his children. Many of us don't know we're his children. We're broken. We're bruised. We feel unloved. We feel rejected. And in our brokenness and in our rejectedness, we hide. We hide behind systems, and we hide behind sin, and we hide behind uh, achievement, and all the things that we throw up in order to block people's view and God's view of who we really are. And confession is coming out and saying, no, this is who I am. I'm a broken person who longs to walk with God again. And so we come out and we use each other to lean on each other in the act of coming out and confessing our sins to one another If you've harmed somebody, you need to confess to them that harm. And then also just confessing our own sins, our own brokenness to another person or a group of people that can be trusted. And then in that, we are the body of Christ when we can do that. And when we're the body of Christ, then we're again walking with him. So this is the discipline of confession. It should happen often. It should, because our falling away happens often. We are weak, but confession is not a moment of weakness. It is a moment of triumph. It's the moment not when we admit to others uh, just how painfully short we are and therefore we deserve condemnation. No, on the contrary, we admit to each other just how painfully short we are and therefore how great and glorious God is to receive us, to love us. And, and if we're receiving another person's confession, it's our job then to be Christ for that person and say, yeah, I do forgive you. I do love you. I do want to take your hand and walk down the road with you, even as God does. So we examine our conscience. We come into the gaze of God. He convicts us of the things we need to confess. We confess them to one another And in that discipline, and it's discipline because it's work, and in that work, we come out of hiding to each other and create a stronger bond with one another and also with the Lord. Now, I have once again spent a little too long talking about the discipline that I want to address each day. Each day, I've wanted to address a different discipline and bring it to you as a way of thinking about it. It's not a, none of these are complete teachings. I'm giving you just a taste of each of the disciplines, and I hope to continue talking about them uh, in the future as as we go forward and look at other scriptures to meditate on. But today, as we move to Matthew, now we want to open up our Lexio Divina, and we go to Matthew chapter three. We earlier read verses 1 through 10, and we talked about John the Baptist and how he came forth. And John then says in verse 11, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, he will clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff will be burned up with unquenchable fire. I'd like to meditate on this just a moment. As I look at these verses, and they're so amazing, aren't they? They're not, the we don't talk like this, and we don't know anybody who talks like this. I baptize you with water for repentance but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me and he talks about he says he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Well clearly this is a reference to Jesus who by the end of this chapter is going to come. but what does he mean here? I baptize you with water for repentance Well we were just talking about the discipline of confession and I think that I want to continue that idea by talking about this uh, repentance so, He's asking people to come forward and to get in the water and get out of the water. And this baptism, this immersion in the water, is a symbol of the repentance that they have done. I just talked about confessing your sins to one another. And John here is behaving really in a priestly role here as the first prophet to come in 400 years there to Israel. So as he's there in this priestly role... People are coming, and they are convicted of their sins. They're convicted of the fact that they've been living selfish, self-centered lives. They've been unloving to themselves and to others. And now with the idea that John is proclaiming here that the Messiah is coming, the kingdom of God is coming, and with the kingdom of God coming, well, I've got to get ready. And I'm not ready. And so I have to confess these sins. I have to get them, get them off my chest. I've got to come out of hiding because the king's coming, and I had better clean up. And so this is John's great work, is to call for people to confess their sins and to repent. And repentance means not just, oh, I feel real bad that I did that. I hurt somebody, and man, I kind of feel bad about hurting them. But it's a, it's a conviction. Repentance is a conviction that I don't want to do that again. And I'm not going to do that again. I've been walking in the wrong direction. And I'm going to turn around, turn around and go back and walk in another direction. Repentance isn't just saying I'm sorry. Repentance is committing yourself to following the Lord and not going down the wrong road again. This is something that we many of us get wrong in, in our confessions and in our apologizing to one another. We, we confess that that other person misunderstood us and feels bad and they shouldn't have because I never met such a thing. Or I really feel sorry for you if you hold a grudge against me because you're a moron. These are not the kind of uh, confessions and repentance that rebuilds relationships. The kind of confession and repentance that rebuilds relationship is the kind that John was talking about, where people admitted to John and to everybody else around that we've done wrong, we've hurt others, and now we're getting in this water, and we're going down into the water, and we're coming out cleaned of our sins, and we don't want to get dirty again. We're not going to go down that road again, because the king is coming and we want to be ready. When the king comes, he's going to see us dressed in pretty clothes and ready to face him. We're not going to be dirty and filthy and uh, living as if we never expected him to come. And so this is the importance of John coming before Jesus. But what's interesting here is that he goes on to say that you know, this person who's more worthy, more powerful is coming after him, and, and John, he's not even worry, worthy to carry his sandals. And this guy, this guy who's coming, is going to baptize you, well, not with water, the way John baptized, but with the Holy Spirit and fire. And fire, throughout the scriptures, and, and, and really throughout literature around the world, is a, is a cleansing, purifying thing. It burns up those things which are impure and it leaves over, it, it's a very destructive force. But if you think about, and the Bible talks about gold being refined by fire. And so the idea is that as you put fire to gold, it purifies it. And so he's saying he's gonna baptize us with the Holy Spirit. So here's the Spirit of God is gonna be with us and fire. And so this is a a, a destructive force and it's a little bit scary, isn't it? And then he goes on to verse 12, uh, rather than alleviate our fears, he says, no, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor. What does that mean? Well, the winnowing fork was the fork that they would use to toss the grain into the air and the wind would come and all the chaff would blow away and this, the heavier grain, would fall back into the pile. And so the winnowing fork was used to purify the grain, and he's going to clear his threshing floor. So all the the chaff and all the dirt and all the rubbish is going to be cleared off, and we're just going to have the beautiful wheat that's left over. That's what the um, that's what the farmer does. And apparently, this is a metaphor for what God is going to do here in Israel in this in the in the first century. He's Bringing in this person who's going to clear off the threshing floor, and he's got his winnowing fork in his hand. And he says, But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, if you're like me, and there's no reason to believe that you are, but if you were like me, you would have a problem with this. Because when we consider that God is our creator and sustainer, and we know that he loves us, because he's the one who made us he created us and sustained us he gives us all kinds of instruction throughout the bible and and really it's written in our hearts right i mean he's not telling us things that are a complete foreign concept to us when when the ten commandments come in and says don't murder don't kill don't steal don't lie you know, these are not like, wow, I thought those things were perfectly fine, and now you're telling me I shouldn't do them. Right. You know, the, no, in our hearts, we already knew these things were bad. All right. And when he comes in to tell us to love our neighbor as ourself, this is not some radical new teaching. This is an old, old, ancient idea. Right? It goes back to the beginning of civilization. You can find this kind of idea written into our stories going back as long as we have literature, the concept of forgiveness, of loving one another, these things are all in there. And here Jesus comes to tell us to love one another. And therefore, I can only expect God is not telling us to do something that he's not doing. The disciples come to Jesus and they say, How many times shall we forgive? And Jesus says, Oh, not seven times, like tradition said, but seven times 77. So, and while that number is a real number, uh, what he was really saying was, You just keep forgiving. Now, we cannot then turn around and say that God is asking us to do something that he doesn't do. So if God is willing to forgive us an infinite amount of times, and if God loves us very much, then what is this language here about him clearing his threshing floor? What is this language about the winnowing fork? What is this language about the chaff being burned with unquenchable fire? Who is it that's chaff? Who is it that just doesn't get to make it? And throughout the centuries... Throughout all of human history, we've been trying to answer that question. Am I better than my neighbor? Because if I'm just better than my neighbor, then maybe I'm good enough. And, and we're always playing this judging game. You know, well, that guy's a pretty bad guy and I'm better than him. So maybe he's the chap that's gonna get burned up and I'm still okay. But I'm not very sure that I'm okay. And in fact, after what I did this morning, maybe I'm really not okay. And now I have to do something to make up for it. And we're always doing this weighing and measuring game where we're trying to decide, am I good enough? And we often answer the question with a no. And then that leads us to more brokenness and more despair as I have to uh, manipulate other people and I have to make myself look better better so that I have a chance of not being the chaff. Here's the thing about all of that. It's all so self-defeating. Because what we know that's true is that God loves us. I know that God loves me. But here's the kicker. This is the part that we don't understand. This is the part where I think that we really miss the mark and go off on all kinds of unhelpful and quite frankly harmful and destructive rabbit trails we miss the mark when we fail to understand that god is the god of reality he's not the god of fantasy and when you and i build our lives on the lie that we project towards others oh I am a good and wonderful person, and everybody knows how good and wonderful person I am. And I've hidden from you, and I thought maybe I was hiding it from God, all the terrible things and selfish things that I am. And yet God comes along and says, I love you. And you say, oh, you love me? The director of this organization that I've built the one who blessed all these people the one who sacrificed so much for others this is the me that you left he says no that you is a complete lie you did all those things for selfish reasons you never did any of those things for me or for others you did all those things for yourself and all that projection that you're doing is a lie and you find out at the end It's all a lie. It's all chaff. It's blown in the wind, and it all gets burned up by fire. And the only thing that he loves is the thing that was real. And if there's nothing about you left that's real, then there's nothing left. And this is what we really mean when we talk about following Jesus, when we talk about having a relationship with Christ, and when we talk about living for God, when we talk about being redeemed, when we talk about being forgiven— This is what we're really talking about. What we're doing is we're saying that we've confessed to God all of the lies in our lives and we're vowing to walk with him to build up something that's real. The only thing that's going to survive this age and this world is love. And everything about me that's loving and good and beautiful comes from God because he is loving and good and beautiful. And everything about me that's apart from God is self-serving, self-seeking, and it's all a lie. So that I can really say that God doesn't condemn me, but if I've built my house, built my life, On shifting sand, and it's all a lie. Then when I get into the other side, Jesus says, there's just going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I'm just going to be weeping and gnashing my teeth that everything that I built was a lie, and none of it survived. And now I have nothing. And this is what it means when they talk about hell. But for all those who put their faith in Christ... For all those who say God is beautiful and loving and good and he sent his son Jesus to die for us and now because of his death, now I'm going to live my life in a way that walks hand in hand with him, transparent to him so that he makes my life real. And then when we cross that valley and we end up on the other side, we end up on the other side with him whom we know, and the things that we worked for and lived for were real because they were love, because they were done in him who is love. And now that person lives forever and never sees death. So this th- these are some big important concepts, and it's a way that we don't usually talk about when we talk about Uh, judgment, and we talk about eternity. We use a lot of metaphors, I think, that aren't always helpful. For me, uh, this metaphor here of the winnowing fork, just the, the, the dust going up in the air and being blown away, and if those are the things that I've lived my life for, and they're just thrown in the air and blown away, then I have nothing left, and I'm just naked and barren at the end of existence. But if I've confessed if I've let him baptize me in the Holy Spirit so that he's given me his life and the life that I now lead, I lead by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, Galatians chapter two. Then when we go to the other side, there's something that's still there because I was real, but not I, but Christ who lived in me. So this is how I'm meditating on that today. We'll probably have to continue to talk about these things because they shape how we think about our relationships with God and how we think about our relationships with each other. That they must be real. And in order to be real, they have to be grounded in a faith in a God who loves us and gave himself for us. Because anything else is not real. And if it's not real it's not forever. Let's move from that to our prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, who showed us how to live so that we can be real. Thank you, Lord, for forgiveness of sins and for all the ways that I have failed you. Forgive me. Teach me to open up and to be transparent to you and to everyone else that the light of your truth will shine forth and all the chaff and the misery and the hatred will be burned away and nothing but your love will be left. Amen. Now let's move to a time of sitting with God in contemplative prayer. I want you to take this time to empty your mind of of the guilt and sin, of the troubles and the sorrows, of the victories and the good things that are going on. Set those aside. Imagine yourself sitting straight, head bowed, eyes closed, perhaps Jesus sitting across from you. And you're just going to sit in his presence like you would sit with a good friend. And if he speaks good but don't think about anything right now. Just sit in his presence. Let's um, read a verse from Psalm 46 and then sit for 30 seconds. Be still and know that I am God. I am exalted among the nations. I am exalted in the earth. Be still and know that I am God. Open the door, sit in his presence. Paul says to us in 2 Corinthians 13, and at the end, he says, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with all of you, now and forever. Amen. This has been Meditations from Middle Earth. May God be your ever-present teacher and richly bless you on your journey.